Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay. I have a great episode for you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People Show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Lindsay Hunter, author of a new novel called Hot Springs Drive. I wanted to do what true crime, when it's done well, does, which is to sort of give you the story of like the community and to sort of like not reduce the victims down to, you know, tropes. I really was writing like a character study. I want to go where the voices are. And so I wanted to hear from all the all the kids, you know, I wanted to hear from the husbands. I, I just really wanted to show this these families as well as I could. I really wanted, you know, to inhabit them as much as I could. Okay, that was Lindsay Hunter, and her new novel is called Hot Springs Drive, available now from Roxanne Gay Books. Hot Springs Drive is the third title in Roxanne Gay's inaugural list for her new publishing imprint. This is a novel that speaks to our contemporary culture's obsession with true crime. It is about a shocking betrayal and its aftermath, and it's about desire, and in particular about one woman's deepest desires, and how the consequences of pursuing that desire, and how the consequences of a massive betrayal can ripple outward beyond the initial strike point. This is Lindsay Hunter's third novel, and it is her second time on this program. We had a great talk, and that is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder before we get rolling that I do a weekly email newsletter, and I think you should subscribe to it. It's free. You can do that at bradlisty.substack.com. 
The newsletter is simple, it's easy, it's user-friendly. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So go over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe. Likewise, if you love this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. Get yourself some Other People merchandise. Get yourself a book club subscription. All that stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lin, who incidentally guessed it on this program just a few days ago. In The Night Parade, Jamie Nakamura Lin braids her experiences of bipolar disorder, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lin, available from Mariner Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Lindsay Hunter. Her new novel is called Hot Springs Drive, and it is available now from Roxanne Gay Books. Lindsay Hunter is the author of two story collections and three novels. Her story collection, entitled Don't Kiss Me, was named one of Amazon's 10 best books of the year, and her novel Eat Only When You're Hungry was a Book of the Month Club selection a finalist for the Chicago Review of Books Fiction Award, and an NPR great read. Lindsay Hunter lives in Chicago, and I'm very happy to welcome her back onto this program and to talk with her about this excellent new novel of hers. So let's get to it. Here I am with Lindsay Hunter, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Hot Springs Drive. Unfortunately, a really big true crime fan. And um, I was, I figured out that Dateline NBC just reruns their episodes as audio. So sometimes they'll be talking about something on the screen. They don't care. They don't care if you can't see it. It's, it's totally fine. So I, you know, when I, when I need like a quick hit, I've, I find myself going to the Dateline NBC podcast. And one of the episodes was called Secrets on Hot Springs Drive. And it, completely stunned me. The story completely shocked me. And I think all along, not not to spoil anything for anyone, but I had been thinking about codependent relationships between mothers and children for a while, being a mother myself and, and you know, noticing other mothers in my life. And I already kind of wanted to talk about how that relationship can go too far. And this story, which just you know, flabbergasted me seemed like the perfect way for me to explore that because I didn't have any easy answers. I didn't have any, you know, this is the right way to be a mother and this is how close it's okay to get. That's something that I'm even still thinking about to this day. And the way that I understand those things is to write about them. So, you know, I had this thing, this murder that that actually occurred, these people that actually exist. And then I had this thing that I was thinking about, which, you know, is is closeness that can turn into codependence that can turn into toxicity and i thought i can write this and i have to write this because i the why of it the why of what happened was what completely took me in and i just knew that i i knew that i could make something out of it, out of it that i needed to make something out of it 
the way that I did it, because as you mentioned, it was during the pandemic. I was in the process of trying to sell this other novel that I had written, which I considered my motherhood novel, which I now look back and realize was my divorce novel. I'm a child of divorce. And that was not going well. So that was on submission as I was writing this. And this process was so different for me because it was the first novel that I was writing after having a um, three kids. And in some ways, going from two to three was easier in terms of what to expect as a parent. But it is harder because it's not that it's just a third person's needs. It's that those needs are like exponentially more. So my brain was different as I was trying to write this and think about this. And the time that I had to write it was completely different. You know, my my first two novels, I took some time off of work and I, you know, my child was in daycare and I was able to completely sit and write all day long in those weeks that I had off, you know, and get a full draft out. And this was the first time that I had to write with all of my family still in the house. And, you know, I, th- I believe my daughter was a year and a half. My my middle child was three or four, three and a half or four. And my oldest was in virtual school because it was, you know, second grade virtual school in the pandemic. And I just had to catch as catch can. And in a way it made me feel like I was living. Like it made me feel like I was using every part of myself because I was so involved as a parent at that time. And so aware of creating a reality for them that wasn't grim. And really appreciating, oddly, the time that we had together. So that was a really full time for me as a parent. And it was also a really full time for me as a writer because I was constantly fighting for the time and filling the time that I had. So, you know, I look back on that and and just recently, like, waves of feeling have been coming over me as I'm revisiting that time, thinking about it in terms of the book. And I'm surprised at how sad it makes me feel because in the moment I felt like I was doing okay. But, you know, and and I, I think another thing that was different about it is that I was approaching it structure first versus story first or character first or voice first. I think a lot of the times I'm going for the voice that I hear in my head or even an image that I want to explore. But this to me, I, I, I really wanted to present the whole thing that had happened all at once. And so in order to do that, I was thinking of it as like a crazy quilt of, you know, like writing the little scraps that I would, that would then be sewn together into this crazy quilt of a novel. And more recently, I've been thinking about it, that it's actually more like a shattered windshield of a novel. You can kind of see that that something horrible happened. And then you look closer at the little shards and the little pieces, and you can see, you know, like what happened, the effect of what happened, you know, what happened before it, what happened, you know, et cetera. So. Okay. So a lot to unpack. (laughs) And I don't want to spoil too much for readers because this is a book. I mean, you could spoil any book, but this is the kind of book that like you really want people to be able to read it and have the, have the experience. But I will say this, it is a book that is very much about motherhood. It's about female friendship. It is a murder story and there is an element of mystery but we find out who the killer is like relatively early on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I think that's, it's, it's about a relationship between two families and it is a very careful and multifaceted slash prismatic character study. And it is 
the third novel that I have read this year, incidentally, that has kind of a true crimey vibe to it, but that unpacks in a very literary way one of these stories. Because there is, I think, a superficiality to the treatment that these stories often get. And literature can serve as a corrective because it enables a person, uh, the, the writer and then the reader as a result, to access the interiors of these characters in ways that maybe Dateline NBC or a podcast does not, right? right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I appreciate that. It's nice to be able to read at a measure of depth. And something I want to talk about is this issue of codependence. It's a word that I understand in context, but if I'm being honest, when you said that earlier, I was like, wait, what is codependence again? <laughs> like codependent relationships between a mother and her child would mean that what? They're too dependent on one another. They have sort of an unhealthy intimacy. Is that what codependence is? <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing that I'm obsessed with. I, you know, because absolutely your child should depend on you. And, and, you know, you are in some way, your identity is being formed as theirs is because you're their mother. And, you know, I, I, I obsess over that because I think about it in terms of my own relationship with my mother. You know, I think that's kind of one of the wonderful, you know, many layered emotional aspects of becoming a parent, or it has been for me is that like time is always happening my past is always happening right as my present is happening and I'm thinking of the future and worrying and hoping and like I am revisiting my childhood as my children's childhood is unfolding and seeing things in a new way almost. So the codependent thing, you know, I think I'm always measuring my own motherhood against all the other mothers in my life. Because I think one thing, another thing that I've learned is that anytime I've thought to myself, like, well, that seems weird, you know, like, I don't know if that's how I would do that as a mother. Inevitably, literally the very next day or the very next week, I will find myself in that exact situation where I will be doing these things that I couldn't relate to, you know, earlier or, you know, had been judging earlier. And so I think about that a lot. I think about like how much, uh, to show of myself, you know, how much of me should be in this relationship. You know, like I don't want my kids, now I feel like I'm going off on a weird tangent, but I don't want my kids ever to be worried about my emotions, right? But I also want them to be aware of other people's emotions. And so it's like this weird balance of like, like, I don't want to be mommy dearest with the face cream and the wire hanger and you being like, oh no, mom's in a bad mood or even, you know, like overly happy because that's freaky too. But, but, you know, you have to sort of be this like example of like, you know, people exist and they have their own thoughts and feelings and reactions to things and those are valid and here's why. And, you know, so I don't know. It's like something I think about and something I try to balance all the time. But, you know, I also think, it can go too far. And I've definitely seen that and think about that in my own life. And, and it can be born of good intention, right? And it can be born of bad intention or just not even considering the outcome because you're a person, you're a mother, you're a person, right? You have these other things happening. And I'm sp thinking specifically of Jackie. Jackie being 
one of the Jackie. central characters of your novel, Jackie yes. Stinson. Yeah, one of the mothers in the novel. So, I mean, to answer your original question, yeah, I mean, codependent is one level of it. And I think, you know, there's like beyond codependent is what I think I'm kind of hitting on in this in this book. But I, I, I always want to sort of go back to the human at the heart of those bad decisions or those non-decisions. Well, that's what this book does. I mean, it takes what I think superficially people could view as simply a human horror, just a monster doing something monstrous. You know, the way that we often characterize really grim human behavior and it humanizes it and adds real dimension and complexity and nuance to it in a way that allows us to understand it, not to condone it, but to understand it a little better, to see it more clearly. And yeah. that I think is what I was talking about earlier with respect to the difference between what a book can do for a story like this versus other media. Yeah. And you say something in the book with respect to motherhood that I underlined. You say, or I think Jackie says, motherhood is a prison of noticing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there is, especially when you have four kids as Jackie does, she has four boys mm -hmm. and you are just constantly in a state of having to notice what do people need? What are people asking of me? Is the house dirty? Uh, are the lunches made? Is one of my sons depressed? Is You know what I'm saying? Like you're yeah. constantly in a state of vigilance or hypervigilance. And there really isn't much of a break, right? That's one no. of the things about being a parent that you sort of learn through experience is the relentlessness of it. Yes, absolutely. And and that's, you know, just personally, like, kind of what I was talking about earlier is like, you know, I'm their mom, and they shouldn't have to worry about whatever, you know, like, they, I, they, they should just be like, they should be able to have a childhood, I guess, you know, and when you live in a situation where your childhood, you're kind of snapped out of your childhood, because something else is going on with your family, that can be really hard to come back from, right? Like that can be a formative experience. Um, you know, speaking specifically of Jackie's kids and, and Teresa's child. But then again, I think about, you know, this has nothing to do with the novel, but, or maybe it does, but I think about how grateful I am that there was a certain point in my life where I saw my parents as people. Cause it was so, and you know, it was necessary. And maybe it's necessary for me as a writer I think it's necessary for me to even be like a good daughter, <laughs> you know, like a good family citizen is like, these people are people, you know, they're not like these tropes, these parents, you know? Well, well wait, um, but when did that happen for you? I'm curious. Like at what they, age? When they, when they broke, you know, when they got divorced, I was 15. I think we, t we've talked about this before. Cause we, I was on an episode of other people long ago. <laughs> I'm sure we talked about it, but, um, yeah, and I and then you know I I witnessed them out in the world as people as adults you know like trying to rebuild their lives versus you know like my mom and dad like you know sitting around in their robe on the weekend or whatever. Yeah, that'll do it. And I, I guess the question that rises for me is like, at what age is it advisable? for you to clue your kids in <laughs> to the, to this idea that, that you're a person versus yeah. wanting to protect them. Like you say, I mean, it's like, you don't want to be sitting next to your five-year-old 
like talking to them about how heartbroken you are over Palestine. You know what I'm saying? I like, know. Like you've got, I have that feeling of just like, you know what? They're going to have plenty of time. It's not that I want my kid to grow up in some cotton candy bubble, but to some degree, I kind of do. They're going to have plenty of time to discover what a shithole the world can be. That's how, my point too. The world will do that work for you. Right. And it's, and I think it's also like one of the things, um, I try to think about all the time is that it's good to have boundaries. Boundaries are so healthy. And, you know, I have, I have friends who I consider to have like very healthy boundaries with their parents. And I feel like they never had to kind of sit in a dark room with their parent watching, you know, eight hours of movies while their parent was working through emotions, you know, like they were just able to have their childhood, their parent, like, you know, had their lives and was, you know, dealing with whatever, but there were boundaries. So I don't know. That's something that I think about a lot is like, is a boundary like my kid never sees me struggle? Cause that doesn't seem right. You know, cause like you're trying to set an example for like, I, I messed up, you know, like, and sometimes you mess up and this is how you can come back from it. You can get back up and whatever. You or you feel, or, or you feel sad. Or I feel sad or I, yeah. Like I feel worried, nervous, anxious, you know, like, that kind of stuff, even talking about like making mistakes, I feel is like so important, but it can tip, you know, it can tip. And I think, I think where it tips for Jackie is when she starts like needing it, right? Like needing that kind of attention or like, like it's a tool she can use her relationship with her, her children, not to give too much away, you know, like it's, I think that's when it can, when you start when the boundaries start to smear or go away, I think that's that's where the danger is. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's like very, it's like, it's subtle psychologically, the way that these breakdowns happen. It's not super, at least to me anyway, like these little smudgings of boundaries, as you say, that's a good word for it. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a clean break is the point. Right. You know, it's like they, they deteriorate in little gestures over time until the point comes at which there is toxicity or there is uh, an unhealthy component to the relationship. Or yeah. in this case, like something truly awful happens, you right. know, in a, in a related sense. So that's what this book kind of draws into high relief and that's the pleasure of reading it, even if it is grim. I think for people, you know, mature readers who read the book, we go to books because, or at least oftentimes we go to books because we want to better understand things that feel complex and hard to grapple with. How the hell does something like this happen? That is the question at the heart of this book. And that's why I think, you know, I, I've been wondering why I love true crime so much other than like, I was going to ask you. Yeah. It, it's something I, I, I try to come up with an answer. And the thing that I have come up with is that it's storytelling and, but it's using real people. It's using, you know, these terrible things actually happened. And I want to know like what the humanity of it is. I want to know like I think, I think our tendency in like classic true crime or Dateline or these podcasts or whatever, not the good podcasts. I think the really great podcasts 
like, you know, serial or in the dark or whatever, they're doing the work of examining, you know, of looking at it from a bunch of different angles. But like the the true like traditional form of true crime is look at this evil, awful person. Look at this horrible thing they did to this innocent. They're, you know, we figured it out. That can't happen anymore. And it does feel good, right? It feels like things have kind of been tied up. And I think some people go to literature for that as well. They, that's what they're looking for. And I, you know, I, I think when I started out to write this, what I was trying to write wasn't about the, wasn't true crime. It was more about these relationships. And so that's how I was, that's how I was approaching it. When I was revising it and looking at it the way a reader might look at it, I realized, you know, they're going to have a lot of questions about, or they're going to want to see more about the crime itself and the person that it happened to, you know, like that, that was like a, a turning point for me in terms of, you know, shaping the book in revision. But yeah, I think, I think I really, I like true crime because there's these details. Sometimes there's in, in good true crime, there's these details that feel unbearably human. And that's what I go to for any good book. You know, I'm, I'm reading um, Helen Garner's House of Grief. Is it called House of Grief? It's her, it's her recent reissue true crime book about a man who drove his car into a dam and drowned his three children and swam out. Yikes. Lived. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, a third of the way through that right now. And he did a horrible thing. And I, and she feels pity for him. And I'm able to feel pity for him. And not that I'm saying that they deserve pity. She says what they deserve is our attention. And I think that's, that's where it is for me is, is I'm paying attention to these, these like parts of humanity that we don't really want to pay attention to. And I think that's I like, unfortunately, that's just my, my bag. I mean, there were a lot of think pieces written, I feel like about the popularity of true crime during the pandemic and during lockdown. Yeah. It, it sort of exploded a little bit, I feel like during that period. And then there have also been lots of things written about the popularity of true crime among women in particular. Female audiences really have gravitated toward true crime. And there are probably multiple reasons for why that is. Do you have thoughts on the gendered nature of the yeah. true crime fandom? Yeah. I, you know, obviously women are murdered every single day. Their violence against women is prevalent. I think also when you're living in a society where you're still sort of discounted, I mean, even as a writer, I'm, I'm a female writer, you know, which automatically sort of like puts you over here. Right. And, and even people are, have the best of intentions, you know, like they're, but it's still sort of othering you. And I think like for me, I don't know. I, it's like I get close to understanding and I can't put it into words. Maybe it's just the search for something recognizable. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I'll posit something, and you can agree or disagree. Yeah. In particular, when these true crime narratives, if they're presented in a podcast, have some sort of resolution, mm-hmm. there might be some deeper satisfaction in that for women in our culture who, as you say, are subjected to violence much more commonly than men are subjected to violence. And so if there is some wholeness to a narrative that you can live through from beginning to end, it might provide some kind of feeling of, I mean, satisfaction is not the right word, but do you see what I'm getting at? Like maybe to be able to vicariously kind of live through the mystery to the resolution, like all the way through the awfulness, it might give you a sense of like vicarious justice or something. Yeah. And it's also sort of like a, a way of, of, of recognizing the truth behind, you know, me saying something like, you know, women are killed by their partners. They're usually killed by someone they know. And, you know, like it, it's, it's a way of like, but this is true, you know, like this is very true. And it's, yeah, I think there is some s- satisfaction again, not the right word, but we know what we both mean in seeing like uh like a closure of a case. But I think for me I appreciate it. <clears throat> I appreciate it more or I feel more comfortable when the, all the answers are not there. Because I think that that's reality, right? I think yes, you know, the murder that Hot Springs Drive is based on was solved almost immediately. And, you know, people are in jail. But it didn't answer the questions that I had. And that's what I was trying to do when I wrote the book. And that's, you know, those are the kinds of questions that remain for me any anytime I'm, you know, really interested in, in any aspect of true crime. I mean, the Helen Garner book I'm reading right now, why would I want to read that, you know, as a mother of three? I was wondering. And, and <laughs> it's like... hard. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a hard read. It's devastating, but I think I just feel better. <laughs> I just feel better knowing about it and reading about it. And, and I like confronting things in myself that i you know, that I see in these narratives. I, I just feel more human. I don't know. I, I keep saying the word human, like well, I'm no, an alien. I, I was reading about people who are terrified of flying and who have like a phobia, like they will not, you know, it's very difficult to get them on an airplane. And one of the treatments for it that tends to have some degree of effectiveness is for them to learn in detail exactly how flying works. So there are these videos that you can watch on YouTube where a pilot like guides you through the entire process. Like how do planes crash? What prevents it? What how, do do? How, how many fail safes are there within the process of flying that prevent it? You know, all this. What are the statistics? They just go through the details. And this 
intimate knowledge actually diminishes the fear rather than heightening it. They don't shy away from difficult stuff, but they're also fat, you know, they're also very clear that statistically it's incredibly safe. You know, it's the whole picture, but that helps. So I think that's probably the same. It's funny that you say that because, um, I took my oldest son, he's almost 11 now. I took him through a car wash when he was not even two yet. And I just thought he's going to love this. It's going to be amazing. And it terrified him. He was horrified. He screamed the whole time. You know, I couldn't like get out of the car wash fast enough. And that set him off on a years long quest to know everything about car washes. He would watch the videos on YouTube. We have like a whole bin full of car wash toys. He always wanted the car wash toy. If, if, you know, we were at target, he was obsessed and it was his way of fully understanding that experience, accepting it, you know, and only recently has he stopped caring so much about car washes. It's, it's exactly like you're saying. And the other thing that comes up for me is, um, I was talking about this recently with someone in another interview. And I remembered that when I was a child, a man crawled in through my window and was rummaging around in my room. And I woke up and I thought it was my dad. So I said, dad. And then he turned around, he had a flashlight and I realized it wasn't my dad. So I quickly turned over and he came over and he patted me on the butt and he said, good girl. And he robbed our house that night. I I somehow fell asleep after, you know, like after he did the good girl thing and, and he robbed our house. And the next morning my parents thought me and my sister had taken my screen off and yelled at us. And only then were we like, were they like, oh my God, where's your purse? That's terrifying. Terrifying. And so I think that must, that must be part of why I continually go to this well, because you know, what a helpless, terrifying moment. And for him to touch me in such a private area too, and, and say I was a good girl, you know, I think that's definitely got a lot to do with it. That's the plain thing, right? It's the phobia that I'm continually making sure that I understand so I can be in the world. Speaking of car washes, I want to say this because this is, I keep going back to this in my mind. I think someone maybe tweeted this once but it's been stuck in my head that I am so relaxed in a car wash <laughs> as a parent, as a parent. Yeah. So business, I just want to posit this as a business idea to anyone out there who's got way too much money. <laughs> if you made a car wash that was huge and took like an hour to get through. Oh my God. I feel like parents, mothers maybe in particular, like an hour long car wash would be a huge hit. Because <laughs> your kids are buckled in. That and like, even if they weren't in the car, like they're at school and you just need like a place to chill. I think a car wash is soothing in some way. There's something great really about like it. fall asleep in there. That's what I mean. Like just you know, like a nice sh- hour long car wash, everything you could just, I guess, wash the car repeatedly, multiple <laughs> waxes. <laughs> I don't know. Me but again. I, yeah. I feel like, you know, this could be my entrepreneurial goldmine right here. I think that's brilliant. Only so, like some places let you watch the car go through. Like, like I'm thinking of a place called Sunny's in Orlando. You could stand in like a really nice lobby and you would watch your car go through the car wash and get washed. And that to me, like every car wash should be like that. I want to be in the car. And just just like on a conveyor belt. Yes. Just Mm -hmm. like with nothing, just the car is in neutral. (laughs) I have nothing to do with it. I'm just rolling through this car wash. Just sort of like the noise of it is, is kind of drowning out everything else. I think that Mm -hmm. could be 
something that people would like, but you would need great. a lot of real estate. You would, you would need like what, f- several acres. <laughs> yeah, you would. Uh, anyway, I want to talk to you about something you said earlier with respect to the way that this book came together for you from a writerly perspective, which is to say you kind of started with structure. And that makes some sense to me because a, a crime story does have a kind of built-in structure to it, at least to some extent, in a manner not dissimilar to, say, a historical fiction narrative where you kind of have like a ready-made. A, cr- a chronology that you're a, going, yeah. Exactly. And you also have maybe a more of a sense of an ending than you might have in a different kind of narrative. And I guess that was the case. I mean, you talked about listening to this episode of Dateline on the podcast and how the crime that they were describing really inspired you. I haven't heard it, so I don't know exactly how one for one the details are, but you just talk about that issue and the structure. Yeah. Um, I, I purposely never listened to that episode again. And in fact, I, in my memory, Keith Morrison was the host and he's like my favorite, but it was actually Josh Mankiewicz. So in the, in the book, there's a chapter from the investigative reporter and it's based on Keith Morrison, but it was actually Josh Mankiewicz. So apologies, Josh, but I purposely didn't listen to it again. Cause I, I didn't want to write a retelling of what exactly had happened to the point where recently when I was writing about it for lit hub and I looked up the crime, there were so many things I had forgotten that I, you know, I was glad that I had forgotten cause that wasn't really the story that I was trying to tell. I really just wanted to understand the relationship between a mother and her son that could lead to what happened. And I think when I was initially writing it, I was writing it out of order. I specifically wanted it to be, like I said, like a crazy quilt. Like I felt like you could shuffle the pages or shuffle the chapters and you could read it in any order and it wouldn't matter because you would, the crime had happened and you could look at it in whatever order you wanted it to. And it would change meaning each time. And then in revision, as I went back to it, it, it wasn't giving that effect or if it was, it wasn't, it wasn't lending, the structure wasn't lending itself to the overall feeling that I was trying to, you know, imbue in the readers or in myself as a reader. And I thought, oh my God, this is like the first time in my writing life that I actually have this like huge plot point that I am just not understanding how big it is. I'm not understanding like how central it is to the story that I'm telling, which is the murder. And, and I thought, if I just trust that and, and, and I, I think about that and I think about, you know, allowing space for the reader to meet me halfway, then when I was re- revising it, it became chronological. And it felt like, you know, it was a moment of like, oh, I can do this in order. And then I was like, oh, is that lame? Am I like, <laughs> is that so lame, man? Like chronological, you know? And it was just like, so conservative. It's like the just, art school kid in me, you know, yeah. just like, uh. but then it really started cooking. And, you know, I think it's still like a non-traditional structure and narrative, but it's so funny because of course I'm like, it's okay. It's still artsy. <laughs> it's still literary, but it was just, it was just wild to me that I had stumbled into this plot where I wasn't even like approaching it that way when I was writing it. I was approaching it in terms of relationships and characters and structure. And in revising, I was like, oh, a lot of the work is done. Right. Look at this. <laughs> All I have to do is re- re- rewrite the whole thing and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's propulsive, this book, and it, it yeah. feels beautifully put together. And one of the things about it that must have been challenging 
is to have to inhabit all of these different characters. Jackie Stinson is the only character I believe who's written in the first person, but there are multiple different perspectives that you are inhabiting over the course of this book, which feels right, you know, in a story like this where you're trying to understand the depths and complexities of a terrible human event. And you do a really deft job of making each of these characters feel distinct and it feels very psychologically astute. Thank you. Like each of these characters, you know, there's not like a false note where you're like, huh? No, like these, <laughs> p- these people feel real and their behaviors feel earned and, and there is an integrity, like a structural integrity to each of them, you know, psychological, physical, and otherwise. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about having to build out all of these people? Yes. I originally, Jackie was in third person and first person because I kind of wanted to hear directly from her. And I also then wanted to kind of like tell the truth about her and that the effect wasn't doing, it just felt like, oh, you forgot what perspective you were in. So in revising that changed, but um, I think it was important to keep her in first person because I wanted her to tell us her story. I wanted her to tell us, you know, decide what to tell us and what not to tell us. And I think she's quite truthful at times and at other times she's, you know, not facing things. She's she's the most complicated character yeah. in the story. Yeah. I think that like a lot of the reviews that I've read, or at least some of them have really honed in on that and made note of the fact that she is one of these people who does, you know, does things that are abhorrent or you don't necessarily agree with. And she, she's she's the character who outside looking in, when you just know the broad strokes of what happened, you think, how? But you do a great job of sort of drilling down into what she's up against and who she is. Yeah, you know, on the inside. I I think having revisited the real person, and I don't really want to talk about the real person because I don't know a lot about her, but I mean, she did way worse things than, than Jackie does in the novel. And I still want to understand her. And I think that's, I think that's my quest as a mother and, and, you know, as a friend of other mothers is to constantly just be thinking about like, why, what, you know, or like just to notice and try to understand like the good, the bad and the ugly, you know? And I really wanted to be able to tell, I wanted to do what true crime when it's done well does, which is to sort of give you the story of like the community and the other people involved and, like, and to sort of like not reduce the victims down to, you know, tropes. I wanted to, like, I wanted to make this feel, I really was writing like a character study, you know, like, and, and, and to the point where when Grove was starting to talk about marketing it to crime readers, I was really nervous because I felt like, you know, yes, there's a big, horrible crime and it's based on true crime, but I was very nervous because it feels like there's a formula that readers are expecting that this this doesn't fall into but i've been really pleasantly surprised that a lot of people have accepted it you know they've i've noticed people saying like it's it's literary crime which i love i, I think that's the coolest coolest thing ever who wouldn't want to be literary crime but i you know i think it also has to do with 
like my flash fiction background and how I'm, you know, I'm, I always, I want to go where the voices are. And so, you know, like I, I wanted to hear from all the, all the kids, you know, I wanted to hear from the husbands. I, I just really wanted to show this, these families as well as I could. I really wanted, you know, to inhabit them as much as I could. And for me, in my background, that's, you know, giving them perspective, that's giving them actual voice. And I think that happens in in good true crime. And, and I'm sure that influenced me as I was writing it too. I feel like there's got to be, as a natural progression, since true crime is such a popular genre now, it's really like a thing. It makes sense to me that there would be like spinoff subgenres that are kind of deconstructive in their bearing and that attack it maybe that's not the right verb, that approach it <laughs> uh, from new angles. And I've seen it, like I said, you know, the Rebecca Mackay novel. Um, mm-hmm. I, I talked to her earlier this year, and then I just talked to Eliza Clark. All of you in different ways are doing some version of this. And that's fascinating. And it feels right to the moment. You know, to say you can see clearly why someone would, especially if you're a fan of true crime and you're a novelist, why you would want to do this and to approach yeah, these stories this way. Exactly. One of my favorite true crime podcasts was The Ballad of Billy Balls by I.O. Tillett Wright. And it was started out with my mom was in love with this man who was killed. And I'm going to solve that murder for her because it completely derailed her life and it was awful. But it sort of ends up more about the mom. And so like I went into it like, oh, this is true crime and I've never heard of Billy Balls before. I've got to know more. And I.O. Tillett Wright's such a great like writer and and um and his mom is such a uh, like a true like New York character just like and like preserve her for as long as possible and you know so it was like I really want to know what happened to Billy Balls but oh my god this relationship between Io and his mom became really what it was about and I and it, it's sort of what you're saying it's sort of like deconstructing it you know and like setting expectations and then sort of like pivoting in a really beautiful way. Well, I think there there are, if you start to delve into these narratives, all sorts of surprising aspects to them. Like you get to know the, the characters who are like secondary or even further out on the margins who might have some connection to it. That almost always leads you into some kind of strange surprise. And yes. there's a lot of that. And in this novel. And it's also a novel that is very horny, <laughs> if I may say what? so. Yeah, it is. But it, I mean, hey, it's a great, it's great to read books that are horny, I feel like. I feel like that keeps people turning the pages. And it reminded me, I was thinking about the way that you're portraying the desires of char- multiple different characters in this book. But in particular, the adult characters, it reminds me a little bit of Alexander Payne's adaptation of Election, the Tom Parada novel, where there's like this like Midwestern lustiness. <laughs> That's very like normcore. It's very normcore. And yet it's very like intense. Yeah. yeah. And so this, I mean, this book yeah. is set in Florida. It's not set in uh, the Midwest, but it had a similar energy and a similar vibe. And it was like, yeah, like ordinary whatever you want to call them, like mid or normcore adults, they can, 
be super lusty. <laughs> they can get down. Okay. They can get down. Right. Well, it's born of desperation and it's born of like a loneliness, you know, that like they might not even be fully conscious of. But like when someone touches you, you know, like touch is so powerful. And, you know, I, I think like in a way, yes, it's hilarious, like that they're just like these like, you know, middle aged parents meeting up in a closet or whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also like, what could be hotter? You know, and I've I've been listening a lot to um, Karina Longworth's erotic 80s and erotic 90s uh, podcast series from You Must Remember This. Do you listen to You Must Remember This? Oh, my God. So she has a whole series called Erotic 80s and then Erotic 90s. And it's all about the eroticism of Hollywood that's long gone now. How you like basically never see. Maybe it's getting a little better, but you don't really see sex scenes the way that you did. And I was thinking a lot about that when I was, you know revising hot springs drive and roxanne was pushing me like one of the roxanne uh, gay roxanne gay my editor publisher yeah she personally edited this so we worked on it together and there one of the you know dirtiest scenes is when they're just kind of like just like in the in the car and they're just like they're not even like they're just using sex as like a weapon against each other and she was like more of this energy (laughs) And I love to write about sex. I feel like there's so much you can learn about people and their relationships and their approach to other people and their feelings about themselves in a sex scene. I think I, I love to read them and I love to write them. And and in fact, I, my next book, I want it to be mostly <laughs> sex scenes. I just, I think, yes, it's like titillating to read that, but it's also, I, f- I feel like so informative and such a way to get at the heart of of your characters. Well, it's also elemental to human existence. Yes. We're just I mean, animals. It, right. And to leave it out, I just, I, you know, I've had com- multiple conversations about this even recently. I think I talked to Claudia Day about this and I talked to Annie, or not uh, not Annie Erno, Anne Enright um, about Annie this. Okay. No, I didn't talk to Annie Erno for this show, but <laughs> Anne Enright, the letters are the same, so I conflated them. But, you know, basically we were all saying, like, I don't want to read. If, if there are no jokes and no sex, I don't want to read it. You know, like yeah. there's got to be a little bit of, of both in a in a story in order for it to be fully human somehow. And I kind of agree. And I think that, like you say, the sex in this book, particularly, well, I mean, the sex in this book is born and the desire in this book is born of real anguish yeah, <laughs> and real, I think, ordinary human loneliness it's amazing how you can be for example uh, a person in a marriage with a family surrounded by people and chaos and need all around you and also be extraordinarily lonely yeah absolutely (laughs) and that's what this book is about i mean jackie as like a central example i think feels that way yes i think you know like it's almost like being in the right place at the right time, you know, like she just needed to be touched. She just, she just needed to, to prove that she still had it, you know, and that she still existed. You know, I think a lot about people ask me all the time about like bodies because bodies and, and people, you know, characters feelings about their own bodies and the way that people react to their bodies is another central thing in a lot of my work. And, you know, I was thinking about, I, I think a lot about how, it feels like your mind is here and your body's here a lot of the time. For me, my mind is here, my body's here. And, and sometimes for me where they come together is desire. 
And, you know, that can be hunger. It can be, you know, horniness. And I feel like that is a a place where there can be like a, just like a, a boom. And for Jackie, who's like searching, you know, she's, she's like really like taking control of her body, but she still has all these feelings that feel out of control to sort of like laser focus in on this affair as a way for her to like, to, to come together with herself. I can't believe I just said come together with herself. (laughs) You know, it's just like. (laughs) But I think that obsession, like she's an obsessive. And you see this with respect to her body, with respect to sex. This is also a book that's very much about uh, women's relationships to food. Yeah. And you have Jackie and then her neighbor and close friend, Teresa, they join the same dieting group. What is it called again? I forget. Get skinny. The... Get skinny. That's right. <laughs> but there's a, a lot of really psychologically astute descriptions of why this is so appealing to Jackie. And I'm going to botch it because I'm paraphrasing, but it has something to do with the eating of food. I think during a pregnancy of hers, one of her pregnancies, where she realized that it was a pleasure that she could control entirely. Do I have that right? Or maybe it was Teresa. I could be muddling it, but I just thought that I was like, oh, that's right. You know, people feel like they're losing control and food can really become a way to have total control. And you see this later too, with one of the boys Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of the big crime at the heart of the book, where he's doing much the same thing. But you just talk a little bit about that part of it, the food part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's so innate to me. And I was talking to a friend who's my same age and she was like, you know, we are of nineties diet culture. And so it feels almost a given that this is how we think of ourselves because we're of the culture of, you know, uh, Dexatrim and Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. And, um, for me and my family, it was Susan Powder's Stop the Insanity. I, I, we had that in my house. And Did Deal you Emil, really? We had Deal Emil, which oh was Richard God. Simmons. Oh, I think well, there was a, there, him? there was an actual thigh master in my house. We had a thigh master. Yeah. Yes. We had a thigh master. I'm forgetting what else there was, but yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, it was like it was a real like there was constant dieting. There was constant body anxiety. My mom was always weighing herself. Her friends were always weighing themselves, you know, like talking about their bodies. It was very public, you know, like nobody was ever, there wasn't like body acceptance. That was unheard of. If you were skinny, you could be skinnier (laughs) is how I feel, you know? And I, that was just, that's just part of me. I can't get rid of it. And, and, you know, like I, I, it's a daily struggle. And so I think like it is very true and it is still true that, women's bodies are on display and there we are, you know, whether it's expectations from within or it's expectations from the groups that we run in or expectations from what we see in the media that we have it together somehow. And, you know, I think that's, that can be so wearing. And so I, you know, I, I know someone who, um, after she had her first baby, uh, her mother mailed her a picture of Giselle Bunchen and said, put this on your fridge as inspiration to lose the baby weight. And, you know, like it's still happening and it's torture. It's absolute torture. And I think it's natural for any body 
to want to be desired and to want connection. And if you don't feel you deserve that because you don't look a certain way, that's torture too. And Jackie finds a way to beat herself (laughs) into shape. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. (laughs) Classic 90s child reaction to trauma. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and, uh, and she's gets high off that power. That is real power for her. Control. The control. Yeah. It's like, she's chipping the stone away from who she believes that she is within. And, but instead she's just actually adding stone to herself. Right. And I think, you know, I just, I think it's, it's, I'm never going to stop writing about it because I, you know, it's just, it's just true. Well, I say this repeatedly, but you cannot go wrong in a story, in a work of fiction by writing about either sex or food and ideally both. Like they're, they're endless. They're, they're, you cannot exhaust. It's so American. I know it is, but it's also just like, you're never going to lose a reader by writing about sex or food, I feel like. Or it's much harder to lose them. I suppose you could do it if you really tried. But I'm always turning the pages when it's about sex or food. Like and someone I'm making just... a sandwich? Yeah. What right. they put on the sandwich? I want right. to know, right. you know? Right, right, right. Yes. And this book, I don't know. And it does, you know, it does really draw well. Not only the way that an individual human or an individual woman in particular relates to food, but the way that multiple women relate to food in each other's company. Yeah. Because that is a dynamic that is very common. It's usually Mm -hmm. not just like one person facing down a loaf of bread. It's like one person facing down a loaf of bread and then thinking about their friends, <laughs> you know, and what someone said or how someone else looks and whatever, you know, what the expectations are, what, how someone looked in a bikini and their Instagram feed and all that kind of stuff. It's more complicated than just person and food. Yeah. I can't tell you how many meals I've been at with friends where it's just easy to kind of like push things around, you know, and like maybe take a little bite, you know, and like a little sip, you know, and, but in my home, it's, you know, I'm eating normally, but it's, it really is. It's just, and I know like we are all modern women. We are all aware that we should feel fine about our bodies. I know the new thing is body neutrality, which is like, I feel nothing about my body and it's fine. I don't have to love my body and I don't hate my body. I'm just in my body, but it's a struggle. It's like a constant, it's work, you know? And yeah. I know that's true for a lot of women. It's true for men too. And men, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I don't think the culture is nearly as hard on men as it is on women, but I grew up in a house full of women who, you know, there's a thigh master in my basement. I rem- I can see it. It was blue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I think some of this stuff- My sister had a ski machine in her room and she was like 12, you know? <laughs> it's like, what the hell? I actually, speaking of men, so I've been obsessed lately with Color Me Bad <laughs> and- yeah. um. The, there are people. Of, there are people listening who don't even know what Color Me Bad is. Excuse me. Okay, so Color Me Bad was a '90s boy band group, and they they actually had a song called "I Want to Sex You Up." I remember. Um, but it. my favorite song of theirs is called "Choose." And anyway, one of the main dudes, Brian Abrams, was anorexic for a really long time. He was. He's actually kind of naturally a big dude, and he didn't feel like he could be that big king in the '90s, you know. And so he was anorexic. He was starving himself. He had like all these other like body dysmorphic things going on. Like he would like, he plucked all his eyebrows out. Oy. And I was thinking to myself, like we have, now we have like 
women who are bigger, who are sexy in our culture, right? And we can look to them and, th- and say like, that is beautiful. But we don't ha- like, do we have that for men? Do we have like the sexy big king? You know, and I was like, poor Brian Abrams, if only he could be our sexy big king. He's still out there. He's still yeah. sexy and big. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, he can be that. It's hard. It is really hard. It's, and there's it's, a, there's a fine line. I feel like I'm thinking about like my own relationship. Cause like I, I'm careful about what I eat and I'm an exercise person. And it's like, I will often argue that vanity is not entirely bad. Like it's good to have a little vanity. You don't want to have none, but there's a fine line between that and like plucking out your eyebrows and starving yourself. Do you know? know? Yeah. It's like, how do you stay on the line where you're like, I'm actually taking care of myself and eating well and enjoying it, but not overdoing it. Like that's, it's okay to not want to overdo it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's hard, especially if it's something you've turned to when life feels out of control or you're sad and you need a little treat and the treat turns into like you're blacked out and like the M&Ms are all gone, you know? Uh Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. I'm the same way. I exercise, you know, five, five times a week. I'm vegetarian. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Me too. So I, I binge eat. You know, like I binge I eat on the, occasion. I, I will eat the shit out of my kids' Halloween candy. Like yes. I, don't, I mean, come on. That's what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, it's a release. It's like some kind of release. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, if you exercise, then you can, I think it gives you, that's kind of why I exercise so that I can eat and not right. feel like I'm going to be, you know, like, I don't know. It, it burns it off. It's not as bad for you if you're also moving around a little bit. So I don't know. It's complicated. And I think all of us, struggle with this to some extent. Everybody eats. Everybody's got a, everybody has a body. Everybody has a relationship to both things, the food and their body. And I think we all have maybe slightly different approaches to it all, but it is weird and it does feel very American. I don't know if it's necessarily, it's not, I mean, every human on earth has a body and eats food, you know, but it, something about our culture it yeah, feels... it's like the it's the rewarding and the punishment and like there always has to be both in America. It feels like I like I spent some time in France. I was just and... going to say France cuz don't they eat like they kind of eat smaller portions but whatever the fuck they want. Whatever they smoke they cigarettes want. and they look fantastic. Wine all the time. You know, yeah. yeah, and I stayed with this like old school French lady. She was in her 60s and she fed us like bread and cheese in the morning, you know, and like we were eating it it, it never felt indulgent it just felt like we were eating because we were hungry you know and like but then you go home and it's like bread and cheese you know like i'm not gonna i'm gonna eat a salad and then later i'm gonna eat like 12 reese's cups standing (laughs) in the kitchen scrolling on my phone and it's gonna feel amazing (laughs) right (laughs) right just dopamine and and processed sugar yes (laughs) Yes. um so i want to talk to you a little bit about florida uh i had forgotten that you were raised in florida i think i had you in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But this book is set in Florida. It makes sense to me that you would have been raised in Florida because I was interested in that choice. But in terms of the vibe, I guess I'm like totally familiar with the Midwestern vibe, but I'm wondering about like what the vibe is in Florida and what part of Florida are they in? They're not in Orlando. Somebody moves to Orlando later, but is it central you know, I Florida? Never, I never actually say Okay. And I don't even think I have an answer for myself. That's terrible. But I, the actual crime happened in Georgia, but I don't have, I don't have a ton of information about Georgia. So I, you know, everything I write ends up feeling like it's in Florida, 
Yes, uh, Sammy moves to Orlando. Um, That's right. Samuel. That's right. Yeah, the vibe in Florida. So yeah, I've been in Chicago for 18 years, which I never expected. But I grew up in in Orlando. I moved there when I was five, so I was there for 20 years. The vibe. I mean. I don't think I really fully grasped the vibe until I left. And I think that's normal for most people. The vibe for me is like the sound of you're alone in your house. Your family's out. The air conditioning has just kicked in. Headlights go past the blinds and it's just completely quiet. It smells like orange blossoms and exhaust. It's so hot that if you step outside you immediately start sweating it's weird and home (laughs) and there's like a desperation and a humor that I feel go hand in hand if you're from Florida I think about Kristen Arnett's writing another she's more Florida than I am now that you know you're laughing as you're crying (laughs) or like you're laughing at someone crying (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I just can feel it. I can just access it maybe because I'm not of it. I don't, I I really don't know that the Midwest has started coming through in my writing yet. And I've been here for so long. It's funny that you say that all these things about Florida, because I grew up in Wisconsin and Indiana and Indiana in particular. That's the Florida of the Midwest. I was going to say it feels very similar. There's a, there's a kind of darkness to Indiana and a, but like also like a humor born of mm-hmm. desperation or something. Yes. Those, those winters are bleak, man, because you yes. don't even get snow. You don't, it's just gray and it's flat and there's not even, there's not a lake. There's nothing, you know, you're just there's kind no of. no trees really. I right? mean, yeah, it's just like denuded like cornfields. And I mean, it's, uh, it does something to you, but it also, and there wasn't much to do. Yeah. Like my friends and I growing up, like we literally played tag at shopping malls until we were teenagers. This is my joke. But like we just had to make shit up. Like we didn't have anything to do uh, in that place. And, uh, you know, you ride bikes. Eventually you drink beer. I mean, <laughs> get a yeah, moped. We were, drinking, we were drinking pretty early. Yeah. You know, like I remember Boone's, um, sure. Boone's Farm when I was, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade at my friend's apartment her mom got it for us and we just that's that feels very florida that feels very very florida maybe she was like well you're here so i can see you so (laughs) like it was a bunch of us girls and then the boys came and like we were in all like side by side in her bedroom and some of us were like petting each other Uh one of them throwing up in the bathtub okay you know it's like that kind of like we're drinking boons in yeah. front of someone's mom. <laughs> you know, that sounds How relatable. Cool. That sounds relatable. I mean, like, yeah, there's like gazebos. Was, I don't know. Yeah, gazebos, fields. I mean, just anywhere really, you could get away with it. You just kind of go there and get a keg. And part of me worries that that is just the natural desperation of a teenager who's ready to go out into the world because it feels, for me, like I had all these big dreams. And it felt like no one around me also had the big dreams. Like, yes, they wanted to like go to college or whatever, but I was like, I wanted to like go, you know, like I wanted to get out. I didn't, you know, and, and I felt this like, is it actually going to happen? Can I make it happen? I'm going to have to like really reach inside me with like the power of my ancestors to like make this happen and explode out the way that I want to. 
And it's like, you know, I've talked to plenty of people who felt the same way. And it was such a desperate, sad feeling that I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to watch my kids feel that way, even though they live in one of the best cities in the world. And, you know, like they have a great childhood. It's just, they're just, it's a natural part of bursting out, I guess. Some, well, for some, I think some kids are happy to stay closer to home and yeah. to not maybe burst out. But I think there, I've talked to so many people on this show who are like, I was seven and I just knew I needed to be in New York. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you know, they just I, had that. I, I did like, I was a huge homebody. So it's weird that I'm also, cause like I would go home from sleepovers. Now that was when I was younger. I could never like stay at a sleepover. I just wanted to be home. But then when I was older, now having said that, I was at Florida State for one year and I moved back to Orlando to go to UCF to be closer to like what I knew. I kind of gone through, I mean, I wanted to get out when I was a teenager and I did. And then there was a period of my, like my twenties, like uh, from 18 to 20, I would have gone anywhere. Like put me in the car, put me on the plane. You could have dropped me anywhere. I would have been happy. And to some degree, it's just harder to think about doing all that in the context of young children. Like once you're a parent, it's like, you know, it's a lot more complicated. Maybe later in life, I will be more like that. But I feel like a lot of it is contingent upon like resources and health. Yeah. You don't have as much energy when you're older. Like I got to be honest, nowadays I'm more content to just be like, yeah, I don't need a comp, I don't need some sensational life. I'm happy to just have my little life. <laughs> like I, I, I can stay I, home. I can do my thing. Like I'm content. I'm not like, I don't need to go to every country on earth. It's all the same in some respect. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're just going to find people. You're just going to find more people. It's great to travel. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, like, I think there was maybe more of a mania for it in me yes, when I was younger. Absolutely. I felt desperate. I, I wanted, like, well, I wanted to be an actress. So I was like, I have to get to New York. You know, like, I have to get somewhere where I can, like, work on this and and you definitely, like, I definitely get have gotten to a point where I, you know, I sowed a lot of wild oats back in the day. Me too. And I saw lots of things and it, it truly is like, I have come full circle back to being a homebody and I, I love being home. I love it. And I'm, I'm supposed to go to New York in a couple, I mean, I am going to New York in a couple days and I'm excited about that, but I'm also like, and then I get to come home, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. I guess we're old. Well, it's that, but also hopefully maybe a little bit wiser. Like, I just think that maybe there's like, there are needs that I was trying to fill with travel and distraction and sensational experience. I don't don't know if sensational is the right word. What's the sensory experience? Sensational sensory experience. (laughs) That maybe I don't have, I don't have as much of that anymore in terms of need. Yeah. Like I'm more content. Like, and I, and I have also done a lot of what I wanted to do. You know, it's not that I don't want to do more of it. I'm just saying that, like, I think actually the best definition of happiness is I've, that I've ever heard is to be free of need or to be free of want. Like, the more free of want you are, the happier you're going to be. And listen, I still have plenty of want and plenty of unhappiness, unfortunately, but maybe less so. Uh, than I used to. And I think there is wisdom in 
simplicity and in living a simple life in terms of its relationship to being a happy human being. And it almost feels like this is what our ecosystem is asking of us. Is it not? I mean, isn't, it feels like we're all being told like, listen, let go, Mm -hmm. simplify, Mm -hmm. want less, Mm -hmm. live simpler. You're going to be happy. Like I just, I don't mean to keep rambling about this, but it just uh, touches a nerve. I just was watching 60 Minutes, as I do, as a gener- a good card-carrying member of Generation X. <laughs> I fucking love 60 Minutes. It's like my- I love CBS Sunday morning, so that's like- I Yeah. Get it. I just love like a good news magazine on television. Come on. But they did uh, a, a, a segment on this island off of Puerto Rico, which is- entirely devoted to research of this particular kind of monkey. I'm blanking on the name of it. It's like rhesus something monkey. And they have like 94% of the same DNA as humans. Whoa. And this island was essentially obliterated in the aftermath of this big hurricane. I think it was Hurricane Maria or something that blew through Puerto Rico several years ago. And so the whole segment was essentially about that hurricane and how it like denuded the whole island. It used to be lush and there was a huge tree canopy, as you can imagine, for like a monkey habitat. And then this this hurricane just obliterated it. And there's just nothing but like what looks like sticks. You know, these trees have been robbed of all their leaves and foliage. And in the immediate aftermath of this hurricane, the researchers, you know, sped over there on their boats to see what had happened to the monkeys, thinking that they're... Uh, they probably had all died. Or actually, they flew over in like a seaplane to look down. And sure enough, they saw monkeys. And in fact, like the overwhelming majority of the monkeys somehow survived. Oh my God. And what they found in the aftermath in observing these monkeys is that they were actually less aggressive in the aftermath of the hurricane with resources significantly depleted and they were more cooperative. And it was actually kind of a heartening thing to see if you think about the shared DNA, because I think in my imagination, when I think of the aftermath of some horrible apocalyptic natural event or something that would really disrupt our society. You think the road, You think the road. You think human beings behaving terribly and selfishly and turning on one another. But it was like, no, in an environment of enforced simplicity, simplicity had been forced upon these monkeys, right? Yeah. They actually got happier and more cooperative. That makes me think of, I just read, <clears throat> I just read a Pamela Paul op-ed. Don't cancel me. Because <laughs> it was about cell phone usage and kids. And I'm always thinking about that too. And, and she was saying that um, schools are starting to ban cell phones. You know, I think Florida is doing that and some other schools are doing it. And what they've noticed is that kids are starting to interact with each other face to face more. And it's a lot of, it's a happier place yeah. because there's not that, you know, screen in front of you. And, and, you know, like I, I left Twitter, um, in the spring and I told my husband recently, I was like, Oh my God, I like people so much more now. Like I was getting so annoyed or whatever with people because of Twitter. And, and I just realized I was like, Oh my God, I feel so much better. You know, like I, it's, it's really wild that, it's another way of saying forced simplicity, right? Because I feel like my attention span, my life completely changed when social media came into it and when I got an iPhone. And when you slowly take that stuff away, which is true for you know all of us, all of our lives changed, the world changed. When you start to step away from that and you realize that 
there's life beyond that. It's, it's amazing how you can see that the world is actually <laughs> more open than you think it is. Yeah. No. Social, I, I was shocked. I, like I, I went on a plane to Detroit. I was like, everybody's so nice. Like everybody's so sweet and happy to be around each other. Cause it's not what you're told. Right. Like, no, I mean, I was going to say that I feel like the social media algorithm, especially on Twitter now is just designed to make you think the worst of people and to agitate you and, it's really not a healthy it's thing hideous. for human. Mm-hmm. I'm the, I'm the grumpy dad. My my daughter has a cell phone, mostly for. I mean, I know it's like it just feels like an inevitability, and it's for safety, and so she can reach out to us if she needs us. But I will not allow social media. That's and good. All of her friends have it, and I'm like, no, no. And again, it's like that same thing where it's like, you know what? There's going to be plenty of time for you to get addicted to social media, just like dad. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think that. What I don't like about it is the permission structure that it creates for people to behave poorly toward one another because of the distance. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be your most strident, your mm-hmm. rudest, your most clipped and self-assured kind of version of yourself on Twitter in ways that you can't when you're standing in like group B at the Detroit airport or whatever, getting ready to board, you know? And I think that you need, it's better to sort of interface that way and to just deal with your friends on text message. That's what my daughter always says. She's like, everybody does everything over Snapchat. And I'm like, they can text you. You Yeah, come on. Just text and hang, you'll be better off. I don't, I don't think like, I feel like it's psychologically unhealthy and in particular for like a growing brain. Yes. And for a growing person. Right. Yes. And you hear like there are so much more anxiety and depression in teenagers these days. And I'm sure the pandemic has a lot to do with that. But it's like it's not not social media, you know, no way. It's, and also it's like the deluge of information that's available to you at all times. Just like it's hard for me to parse that. I can't imagine having a younger brain, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's, I'm not batting a thousand here. My daughter's like a YouTube addict and you know, who knows what she's watching at night on her laptop. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a super helicoptery parent, but I'm at least going to try to prevent social media from becoming like, you know, taking over her life. Um, So let's see. I'm curious to know if you think you're going to continue I mean, you talked about this next book of yours, which is nothing but sex scenes. <laughs> is it in any way like true crimey? Like, is this a vein that you're going to continue to explore in your fiction? I mean, it the 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 sex book that I'm writing it does have a murder in it, so you know there is crime. But it's more of like an erotic. What do you call it? An erotic thriller, erotic noir. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I haven't I haven't come close to finishing it. So maybe I'll have a, a name for it when I'm done, but. Yeah, uh, I it does. It feels like like the crime has opened a door for me. Now, having said that, I also have started researching another book where I I want to write um, a novelization of Patricia Buckley's life. Um, Wait, and, who's that? I'm, I'm so blank. she's she was the wife of William F. Buckley Jr. Oh, okay. And we have her to thank for the what we know as the Met Ball, and you know she's she had a silver tongue. She was you know, a drunk, like socialite, so brilliantly smart, sharp-witted party girl. And she just fascinates me. I've 
the few glimpses glimpses that I've had of her in other people's books just immediately drew me to her. And there's nothing about her anywhere. You know, and, I think and she's... for people listening, William F. Buckley is the father of modern American conservatism. Right. So fuck him. But um <laughs> But I mean, but also it's interesting that I mean, usually when there's somebody I mean, I don't know. They, behind every great man is an even greater woman. That's the old That's saw. And they were so so speaking of codependent, they were so codependent on each other and much more so in their later lives and, you know, died within months of each other. And I mean, I think to some extent William F. Buckley Jr. would absolutely abhor the con- the current state of the conservative politics. You know, I think he's the one who coined the phrase the fever swamps, which is what we're living in right now. But Patricia Buckley there would be no him without her. And I think, you know, she's, so this is, this is my dilemma. I'm doing a lot of research on her. I read Christopher Buckley's memoir of, of his parents' deaths and I've read a few articles, but I haven't found the thing yet. I just know that I'm fascinated by her and I would like to write about her, but I haven't found my way in yet. So it's not all crime from here on out, potentially. Unless you stumble into something awful that Patricia Buckley did. <laughs> what if I find something out? Okay, I will write it. <laughs> I was going to say, cannot be stopped. Uh, well, it's really fun to catch up with you, and I congratulate you on Hot Springs Drive. It's an excellent book and like a page turner, but also like a deep dive into people or characters and human behavior that is illuminating and makes like the true crime genre feel like new and seen in new ways. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Lindsay Hunter. Her new novel is called Hot Springs Drive, and it is available now from Roxanne Gay Books. You can find Lindsay Hunter on the internet. Her website is lindsayhunter.com. Once again, The new novel is called Hot Springs Drive. It is superb. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. Join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a moment and you want to help the cause... Give this show a rating and write a little review if that's an option wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And it is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so there are options. Once again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a new flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday... There should be a new episode. Right now it is TBD. I don't have it firmly in place just yet, but I believe that it's going to happen. It's a holiday weekend. I'm sorting it out. There's a lot going on. It'll be a surprise. So Sunday, TBD, there should be a new episode. Stay tuned.